Several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. You know what? There's a subject out there that I don't think we talk about enough. And I got to lead on to some guys that are doing some really super interesting things in this particular area. I guess you could say that these guys are recyclers. They're definitely into sustainability, but not in the way that we often talk about on the radio. When we talk about sustainability, it's always about the vineyard and never about something that we all take for granted that few of us know very much about. Many of us like to decorate our yards with is such an integral part of the winemaking business. It is also one of the most misunderstood. And I am talking about the wine barrel. Hey, I got some guys guys in here that I recently met and they are really doing some very cool stuff. They have a company called Quality Wine Barrel with me. First of all is Lucas Brewer and uh, you're the general manager and also a part owner of the company, right? Yes. Been with the company for a long time. Yeah, about eight years. And then you uh, brought in as both moral support and a body of intellect that uh, you may need to turn to in this interview, and that's uh, Michael McLaughlin. Is it McLaughlin? Yeah, it's McLaughlin. It's Michael McLaughlin. He is a barrel recouper specialist. I just like to call him the super duper recouper. That's correct. Yeah. It's not a title <laughs> that is bestowed in your industry, but I'm going to have to get a shirt with that on there. That's you should call. <laughs> Damn, I'll, I'll buy you a shirt like that. That's anyway, you guys are on the central coast of California where, where we're located, uh, but you have a very interesting company. We have had other barrel people here and I will say, you know, we've talked about, well, what's the difference between French oak and American oak and how do you make a barrel and you know stuff that I think the geeks kind of like a lot but I think the regular folk out there are going to really love what we're going to talk about today which is a business that takes something that is otherwise kind of considered to be past its prime and then bring it back to life again save people a whole lot of money which generally speaking translates into less money for the wine too because the barrel is a big part of the cost is it not guys? Oh absolutely Absolutely. With the average barrel costing $1,300. $1,300. Yeah, a landed to the winery costs about 1300 for a French oak wine barrel. Isn't that something? And then for American oak, can we save a little bit? Yeah, you're going to be about half that for an American oak. That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> no, it, no, that does not seem fair. Why do the French get all that money? Is there that much difference between the American oak and the French oak? If you ask the average winemaker, they would tell you yes. So why don't we just, uh, in the middle of the night, go to France, 
we'll dig up a bunch of their oak trees. <laughs> Transplant them here. <laughs> we'll plant them here. And you know what? And, and then we'll call it French oak, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't we do that? Because I, we, I guess we could say give it a shot. We could call it a French oak tree barrel. But there's a number of different countries that make oak barrels, and, and they're all good in their own right, too. And, and certainly the American oak barrel has its purpose in life. There are certain wines that would do better in American oak than French and vice versa right you can't oak is not a situation where one size fits all yeah, it's absolutely a preference. The difference between putting Cholula sauce or ketchup on your <laughs> on your burrito or burger. Yeah, I guess you could go there. A little metaphor for <laughs> yeah. you guys, huh? <laughs> See, you could do that. You could say, ah, the French barrel is Cholula. The American barrel is Heinz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the winemaker presumably already knows the difference between the oaks, but let's get into the real nitty-gritty of quality wine barrels because you are doing a lot of barrel repurposing and refurbishing and you're taking wine barrels that have you know not a lot of use on them and you're going in and you're you know scraping out the part that is no longer useful retoasting the barrels in the way that they used to do it in caveman days right where the cavemen would all dance around the oak barrel fire and uh, <laughs> bring in a boar dance around it as well yeah dance around <laughs> it dance around. you bring in a wild boar and yeah. you know whole thing so let's can you guys give me a rundown let's talk about you know first of all the idea of let's call this chapter the barrel is not dead yet. Hey, remember that Monty Python scene in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? The guy's on the wagon, you know, bring out your dead. And there's a little old guy, and he goes, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> That's a truth for oak barrels, right? Yeah, so basically, we take a barrel that, you know, in years past would have been taken and ended up in somebody's front yard or... Uh, filled, with, filled with petunias. Yeah, exactly. We take that, we bring it, um, we inspect, make sure that... That it's good enough to be able to be recoupered. And then if it is, we remove the heads, shave out the inside, bring back that life, that original oak flavoring, toast it to preference for the winery. So how much when you go in there, uh, first of all, I don't know if I know exactly how wide a barrel stave is. You know, is it is it an inch? Yeah, it's basically a, a little over an inch is a thick stave barrel. There's there's variants, and, and it narrows it. as it gets to the top, right? It gets it's it's thinner toward the top. Or am I wrong? The uh, the width, not yeah, the, the thick. The, the, the thickness of the stave is going to. Oh, okay, okay. So the the, the, the the thickness is always the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't even notice that. Now what we do is we we remove what a sixteenth to an eighth is to it? an eighth inch. Yeah, we have yeah. to start with a thick barrel and we remove about a sixteenth to an eighth, depending on how deep the saturation into the oak has become. So you're you're literally you can tell uh, especially I am I'm imagining with a barrel that has been used for red wine, you can tell pretty quickly how deeply the wine has permeated the wood. Is that is that is it a visual thing with you? Yeah, it's going to be visual. You can see the the saturation. Even in the white wine, you'd be surprised. Basically, 
with the white wine, you use the old toast as the reference. And so you shave down below what was the original toast and remove all of that to get down to fresh oak. And you can tell immediately when you've got fresh oak. Absolutely. So barrel A uh, that came from winery X and barrel B that came from winery Y could be totally different. And that day when you're going through all these barrels and, and working with them, you're going to have to adjust as you go from one barrel to the next? Yeah, that's why we do we choose to do it by hand um, versus a machine is because there's so much variance. Um, I don't think they have a machine that's going to adjust for that much variance. So they've got these machines out there. I, I've read about, I'm not seeing them in action, but I've read about these machines that you know, basically they use a really high-pressure water system that's so powerful that it could it could strip you and I down to the bones. But they go in and they, they, they work with the barrels that way. Tell me why it's preferable to do it by hand. I think that you can get more, you can adjust better by hand. And also, uh, I like something about just the old way of doing things, having somebody in there physically working on the barrel and being satisfied that it's um, consistent. You know, and that's something I want to talk about as well, the old way versus the new way. We're going to get into that subject in just a minute. We got to take a little bit of a commercial break. You guys don't mind, right? No. No, okay. We're going to go play. We, we have set up in the lobby uh, the game Barrel of Monkeys. And uh, we're <laughs> do you guys own that game? No. What? No. <laughs> do you even know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the monkeys. you got to yeah. hook the monkey, one monkey to the next, right? Yeah, you should give that away with every barrel. <laughs> do you guys know how many more barrels you would sell if you gave away a barrel? <laughs> you get a little sticker on the barrel that says uh, quality wine barrels right here. This we're a barrel. Of monkeys. Yeah, this one's <laughs> full of monkeys. <laughs> we don't monkey around. Yeah, like <laughs> quality wine barrels. All right, so we're going to talk about some of the weird stuff that goes on. You know, to you know, kind of try to you know make things easier and the difference between that and the old ways when we return with grape encounters radio uh, my guests are two uh, very fun guys they jumped right out of the barrel of monkeys it's lucas brewer general manager and part owner of quality wine barrels and michael mclaughlin who is the barrel recouper specialist we like to call him the super duper recouper it's an official title bestowed only here you know, it's like how the the, the queen <laughs> Seriously, uh, Michael, the queen can both bestow all kinds of titles. Yeah. Why can't I? You're more than welcome sh- to do it. It's yeah. my radio show. That's right. Okay, so you are our super duper barrel recouper. And we'll be back with these fellas in just a second. So stay with me. The best way to avoid spitting wine is to avoid wines unworthy of being swallowed. David will be right back in a spit second. Oops, my bad. Make that split second. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, 
John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia... Her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. There are tens of thousands of wines and even more stories about them. Here's a wine story selected just for you by your personal wine captain, David Wilson. Today's edition of Grape Encounters Radio is brought to you by the Wines of Peak Ranch. I recently discovered these truly amazing wines that are raking in top honors from the wine press. What I didn't initially realize is that I had a very strong connection to these perfectly crafted Pinots, Syrahs, Chardonnays, and more. Remarkably, these wines are produced by my very best friend from the first grade, John Wagner. Now, I have to say that John has always one-upped me in almost everything he does, and these extraordinary wines are no exception. Made from grapes grown on one of California's most historic Central Coast properties, there is no other word to describe them than perfect, and critics everywhere agree. Buy them online at peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. Tell you what, I almost didn't want to end the commercial break because we were engaged in a wild and crazy game of monkeys in a barrel with my uh, with my two prime barrel monkeys here today. Lewis Brewer, he's the uh, general manager over at uh, Quality Wine Barrels, and uh, Michael McLaughlin, who is the barrel recouper specialist, but better known here as the super duper barrel recouper. So a lot of weird stuff that goes on with oak. My 
wife put together a couple years ago a little kit for me, even though I'm not a winemaker, but of stuff you could add to wine to adjust it and, you know, make it taste better, generally making it taste worse. You know, the stuff I'm talking about and the, the ones that really kind of wrangle me are the oak extract. There's just nothing that smells good about oak extract. And it comes in a little bottle and you sniff it and you go, oh, it's sort of, you know what it's like, guys? It's like, um, it's like sniffing your great grandfather's pipe, you know, which isn't a bad smell exactly, but it not, doesn't make my wine taste better. Right? That doesn't make you want to drink it. <laughs> a lot of guys are out, the guys and gals are out there making wine, and, you know, understandably, barrels are expensive. So they do a few things that are kind of weird. They, they'll add oak dust. They will add oak chips to the wine. They, they put a sleeve. They drop it down into the barrel, and basically they chop up pieces of oak, and they put it in there. It makes me so uneasy. I have evil thoughts about that. Like, it's not fair. First of all, they mutilated a barrel. That in and of itself is bad enough. But then they put it in the there, you know, to make us all think that the wine was in this barrel that was built by some kind of guy like our super duper barrel recouper. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, yeah, we, you know, we were offering the chips this year. I mean, my preference obviously would be to keep barrels. Um, I love barrels, everything barrels. I got to go where the market takes me. That sounds a lot like selling out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You got a family, Lucas? I do, I do. All right, go ahead and sell out. You're going to take care of the kids, got to get them through college, that sort of thing. Anyway, going back to the, the subject at hand, there are a lot of ways to simulate the taste of oak in wine and many of those methods are, I think, you know, they're legitimate. They're going to get that flavor in there. But what is it about you guys and, and, and me the same? I think what is simpatico about the three of us guys. Did you want to know? I think we're diehard romanticists. And that, you know, there's, it's just like screw cap wines. I know you don't like screw cap wines, no, do you? Absolutely not. I knew it. How about you, Michael? No, if it doesn't have a cork in it, I don't drink it. <laughs> no cork, then yuck. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. The only time I, I feel uh, screw cap wines are, are good is uh, in an emergency. Like, I need, <laughs> yeah. I need, yeah. I need yeah, I it that. now. <laughs> don't have a corkscrew. You know, you go out of town on a t- trip, you know, and you forgot to bring a corkscrew, which shame on you. But then uh, you, you go into a store and you find wines and you go, well, I could get the screw cap wine and not pay $3 for the corkscrew. Or I could get the one with the cork and I'll have to buy the corkscrew. Or you could just use the pen in the hotel room to push the cork down into the yep. neck of the bottle. You You've go. done that, haven't you? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I make a video on that. <laughs> yeah. There are various ways to, to get into it. But yes, I do think that the, the, romantic, the romantics that go along with wine that is aged in a barrel is is really cool. But what I think is really super cool about what you guys are doing at uh, Quality Wine Barrel is this idea that, you know, you have these wines that would have otherwise been judged to be what neutral barrel we call a neutral barrel. It's just a a storage vessel, right? Aging and storage But we could do this with concrete and stainless steel, couldn't we? Wouldn't it be cheaper? Uh, I don't think you're going to get the oxidization. You know, I think that's the biggest difference between the takes and the barrels. You want the, the, the barrels breathing. Exactly. Sometimes really late at night when Michael is in the barrel room, you can see him. He's just intently listening to the barrel's breathing. <laughs> just quietly listening. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and he grabs the barrel and he snags it and the next day he's scraping at it. That's right, <laughs> scraping it away. Scraping it away, <laughs> retoasting that. Tell me about uh, toasting over an open fire. Um, so yeah, we, we toast over an oak flame, an oak fire, where we actually take an older barrel and it sounds bad, but chop it up and, and use this firewood, but it gives it that organic feel to it where we're taking it back to what they were doing hundreds and hundreds of years ago to giving that barrel the the flavor of the oak fire. So let me understand that then. So instead of just making a fire with whatever wood you have laying around, you're actually burning grandpa barrel to in some way rejuvenate baby barrel. Most definitely. Yeah, we, we wow, try to that's use... cruel, but it's, yeah. you know. But, <laughs> but it, at the same time, it's... Grandpa, no! <laughs> Sacrificial. Yeah. <laughs> At the same, I want to be toasted by grandpa. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. At the same time, um, you're not going to get the same flavor from a different different wood. The oak itself actually gives, uh, it's seasoned oak because it's, yeah. you know, it's stored wine for so many years. And so that, that flavoring is actually in the fire and it, it goes into the toasting of the barrel. When you hear people, you know, you guys probably go to plenty of tasting rooms and, and hang out there and you listen to the tasting room staff and they say, and it spent uh, 18 months on neutral oak, which means basically the only thing that's happening is you're getting that air that's permeating into it. Are you in the back of the crowd going big whoop? You know, like, wow, that's really a big claim to fame. Basically, the barrel's dead. We're going to put the wine in there and store it there for a while because that's what we need to do. That never impresses me, neutral oak. Thoughts? I think it's lackluster. You know, it doesn't have the exciting of getting the barrel you know, how much oak is it going to give off? You know, where are we going to end up when it's done? Putting in the neutral vessel just lacks that uh, that flavor that jumps out at you. Okay, guys, I, I want you to stick around for a few minutes longer, okay? We, I got a few more questions I got to ask you guys. You, you guys are a tell-all gang. I've noticed that, too. It's amazing what happens when you feed people a lot of wine while you're doing an interview. No, I'm just kidding. All right, we'll be back with more. <laughs> we'll be back with more from our fellows from Quality Wine Barrels, Michael McLaughlin and Lucas Brewer. Who meant to go in the beer business, but uh, beer? Hey, let me let me just ask you real quick though before we go to commercial. The beer guys are buying barrels, right? Yeah, it's blown up the last four. Crazy! Or five they years. want to be more like the wine guys. Yeah, I think they dig that um, that flavoring that the barrel gives off. You know, it's in fact they're copying the wine guys so much that it used to be that the wine guys would stomp their grapes, and now the beer guys are hopping their hops. Really? <laughs> they do yeah, the beer hop. <laughs> yeah, they do a beer hop thing. It's just kind of like a little uh, kangaroo kind of a movement. All right, we'll be back with more grape encounters right after this. Remember, as much as you may love wine, it is not the answer to your problems. Unless the problem is you're out of wine. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after these important messages. You don't have a problem with that, do you? The Central Coast of California is world-renowned for exceptional wines, but it's also one of the most vibrant and alluring travel destinations in America because the wide range of things to see and do here is absolutely astonishing. From stunning beaches to breathtaking hiking trails to world-class dining, artisan craftswork, and so much more, California's Central Coast is addictive. For those visiting this magical region, there's no better place to call home base than the city of Atascadero. 
Atascadero is perfectly centered in the middle of everything you'll want to see and do while you're here. A true slice of Americana. The locals here are eager to welcome you, and the accommodations are plentiful, comfortable, and affordable. Atascadero is a 365 days a year destination with mild winter weather and mostly sunny days, even when the rest of the country is bundled up. For more information about the warm and welcoming town of Atascadero, log on to visitatascadero.com. Discover the California Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets. And they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. You have absolutely no idea how difficult it is to get two guys to sit down in a studio who are wrapped inside a barrel. Lucas Brewer and Michael McLaughlin, welcome guys back from Quality Quality Wine Barrels. So the the person now the the, the market for a I don't want to call it repurposed barrel, but you, you you saved the barrel. You redo the whole thing. You, you you sand it down and you retoast it and all that. It's no longer worth well, let's see two halves of a barrel are worth ninety dollars. You know if you're into petunias, but if you're into pinot, then it might be a thousand dollars. What does it sell no, for? No, it's going going for about two twenty right now. That's really cheap. And then and then you also are doing other stuff with the barrels that just can't cut it. Tell me some of the stuff that you're doing with the barrels that don't make the cut. Yeah, we like to build furniture. We also sell two people. DIY projects is kind of grown recently where um, a lot of people think they can build it. You know, they take the barrel, they buy it from us, they try to build it, and then uh, they come back and buy the furniture from us after they figure out they couldn't build it. <laughs> it you know, it's, 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 it's not as easy as all that. What's, no. the, what's the craziest thing that you've built out of a 
wine barrel. I actually, I took a punching barrel, which is a 132 gallon, and made it into a large bar patio table. Half of it is a ice chest, the other half is a table, and it's absolutely gorgeous. What is our infatuation with recycling wine barrels? How come we don't recycle siding from Sears? That, don't uh, answer they, that question. Yeah, I, was like, I don't know. That's a... I think we all know the answer to that question, David. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, no, but, but, but there is an infatuation with, let's make something out of this barrel it's just like there's this level of enthusiasm that I can't explain. It's like, what is it that the, the barrel staves just they have some magical power to make people very creative? Well, there's there's no square edges on a wine stave. And so oh. that there's so much character to them and there's no real consistency. One's not like the other. And so I, I believe people love the lines and the shape and the flavor of staves. Wine barrels lend themselves to be repurposed just about better than anything else out there, really. Yeah, and it's becoming extremely expensive to just buy, if you just wanted oak to build anything out of, extremely expensive, whereas you can buy a used barrel and get, you know, the equivalent amount of oak for probably half the price of what you'd pay for some just normal oak. So here's a question for Michael, uh, and I really don't actually know the answer to this question. Do all staves begin flat? Yes, it's a plank of wood, and then they they take them and they age them, um, and then they they water bend, they fire bend, and um, and that's how they get their curvature. Hypothetically, couldn't we bend them back? That's a little outside my knowledge. I'm not sure about that one. That would be pretty rough. Uh, but you're the super duper. Yeah, no, I know. I just I, I wouldn't know where to go with that. I think if you were to do that, though, you'd take away their character. Well, I was, so I was trying to do that. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. Um, the, the character that the the barrel, you know, making whoever made that barrel at one time. You know, each individual stave is so different. It has its own personality. So I guess, I mean, yeah, you would be taking away the character of the barrel and it would have a nice, pretty color to it. But um, I guess you could just buy a piece of oak and cut a stave size size plank. (laughs) Just throwing ideas out there, guys. Who buys your barrels? Uh, Wineries and breweries. Are they the smaller wineries that are kind of priced out of the fine barrel market? Uh, Not necessarily. I mean, it depends on demand that year. Wine's very hard to predict in yields. So a lot of my businesses is purchasing from all different wineries and then being ready to fulfill needs during harvest. Have you ever had people come uh, with wine barrels and go, hey, I'd like to sell you these wine barrels. And they're just like, just the pits, man. They're just, yeah, oh, they're yeah. beat up. No, I wouldn't use that barrel for, well, I wouldn't even roast grandpa on that barrel. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I, I mean, one thing I pride myself in is I'll, I'll buy everything. Even uh, during the, the earthquakes in Napa years back, um, I bought all the barrels out of there that had been damaged. And, uh, you know, I'll buy it all. It's just all based on the price. I like to get them out of the place and find a home for them, no matter how old, ugly, indifferent they may be. What made you so environmentally conscientious? Well, I mean, no. Why, why did you want to? Why did you want to fix what was broken and take on these um, bastard child barrels that were um, beaten up in the Napa earthquake? I just like to find a home for everything. I don't. I don't see. I think there's still a purpose for it all. You know, rather than see it all go to a landfill, I, th- I think there's too much stuff sent to a landfill yeah. that could have a purpose. So, Michael, does he bring stray kittens to work too? Uh, we actually had a couple around the shop at one time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. 
neighborhood. Yeah, we actually had a couple running around the shop. So yeah, he's uh, he's he's all about that, giving everything at home. Oh my gosh! Well, you're both pretty burly guys. You got kind of guys who look like you carry wine barrels full on your shoulder. So you know you're, you're tough guys. You know, salt of the earth kind of guys. So anyway, well, I, I really want to wish you guys the best of luck. I, I love what you're doing. It's a it's a great company. I heard about it from a friend and was so delighted to get you guys in here. So the the whole idea, if we can just run it down really quickly is is that you bring in barrels I guess we should say varying qualities right because some of them are are going to go back into the wine business some of them are going to turn into benches and and uh, and petunia planters and that sort of thing some are going to become wood chips some of them are going to be used to reach toast their grandchildren and uh, and it's the ugly truth about the wine barrel businesses but you know the we have a generations of wine barrels that came after and grandpa's done and so we're going to burn him up and retoast his grandchildren anyway uh that's weird uh but uh (laughs) (laughs) anyway but uh but things like that right and and uh anything down the road that you're thinking about doing that you can share with me yeah um, uh we're hoping by uh uh, the end of next year to be building barrels here on the coast. Oh, no, really? Yeah, that's that's the goal. It's always been the goal. You know, it takes a lot of effort, learning, education. There's nobody doing that here, right? As far as I know, nobody is, is building wow. barrels. Wow. I would almost give up my radio job to just go out there and could I have like a wooden mallet? Oh, absolutely. We'll get you. We'll put you to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could I sometimes apprentice under the super duper Barrel Cooper. <laughs> the super duper barrel recouper. Yeah. Yeah, you come out there and I'll I'll show you how to do it. If he hasn't by that time reached godlike status, you know. Are you are you working on the statue of of him at this point in time? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's in the works. Because, you know, like, you know, you seem like a guy who wants to build a company that's going to be here 300 years from now, like they do in Italy and in other places, France. And Absolutely. That's why you got to start on Michael's sculpture now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that went over really yeah. big. Okay. So for the, we have a lot of industry people that listen to this show, and I, I think we've uh, opened them up to a great resource and no, you didn't hand me $12 to buy this hour of radio. But um, so for people who would be interested in knowing more, first of all, from the industry side, winemakers, how would they find you guys? Oh, you could check us out at qualitywinebarrels.com. Qualitywinebarrels.com. Not exceptionally high quality wine barrels.com but no. qual- just quality just quality, quality. Yeah. Or, quality. Or reach out to us on Facebook check out our Facebook page we usually got some videos and different stuff we're trying okay. to keep on there and then uh, same for the consumer they go to the same place somebody wants a uh, uh, Wants a coffee table for the backyard, and and I, I don't think we really mentioned it so I want to make sure I do you'll do custom stuff Absolutely. Custom to order is uh, is the preference on the furniture end of it. I have a really, really good idea for a custom thing. I'm not going to tell you on the radio, though. Okay? We're going to have to take a commercial break, and then I'll share with you my idea. Because I don't know. Yeah. It'll get out there, and, you know, people listen. Next thing you know, you 500 different people are using my ideas. And I am, on the on the other hand, looking for the, the, the cheapest... Um, 
uh, cut of beef in the store. It's not fair. It's so not fair. Stop stealing my ideas. Okay. You know, if I would just stop telling people that on the, my ideas on the radio, I wouldn't have this problem. Oh, okay. All right. Hey, guys, thanks very much. I appreciate you coming in. Michael McLaughlin, he is the super duper barrel recouper. That's not his official title, actually. He's barrel recouper specialist. And, uh, and then Lucas Brewer came from the beer industry where they gave him the brewer last name. But uh, he's the general manager and uh, and part owner of Quality Wine Barrels. You guys have been a hoot. Yeah, okay? It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. We got a couple of minute commercial break. I am just one monkey away from winning the game. And so uh, <laughs> let's jump into the commercial now, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with Grape Encounters Radio. Yes, there's more, more or less. sometimes say it's the wine talking well everyone knows that wine can't talk that's why a bunch of grapes got together and hired david wilson to do the talking for them (laughs) david will uncork today's story after this in greek mythology we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and, of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. The Central Coast of California is world-renowned for exceptional wines, but it's also one of the most vibrant and alluring travel destinations in America because the wide range of things to see and do here is absolutely astonishing. From stunning beaches to breathtaking hiking trails to world-class dining, artisan craftswork, and so much more, California's Central Coast is addictive. For those visiting this magical region, there's no better place to call home base than the city of Atascadero. Atascadero is perfectly centered in the middle of everything you'll want to see and do while you're here. A true slice of Americana. The locals here are eager to welcome you, and the accommodations are plentiful, comfortable, and affordable. Atascadero is a 365 days a year destination with mild winter weather and mostly sunny days, even when the rest of the country is bundled up. For more information about the warm and welcoming town of Atascadero, log on to visitatascadero.com. Discover the California Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. no time were any animals harmed during the making of today's show. However, countless grapes were crushed and mutilated. 
This is Grape Encounters Radio. All right, we are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and everybody knows that wine comes in two colors, right? Red and white. No, no, no. It's three colors, red, white, and pink. Of course, uh, pink wine or rosé wine becoming very, very popular. But there's another color, believe it or not, that has found its way into the wine color spectrum. It is orange. Yes, orange. I've got a friend who is a tremendous winemaker who has decided to venture into the world of orange. And so for a little while, we're going to talk to my friend Michael Kirkpatrick. He and his family run Ruby Cellars. And Michael, my friend, welcome to Grape Encounters. Thank you, David. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I just want to start off by mentioning my son, David. He and I are the co-winemakers of Ruby Cellars. Oh my gosh, you had to get a plug in for the boy. Every time. You've got another boy that's in the winemaking business as well. Yes, that's my son, Ryan Kirkpatrick. He uh, works for Hall Wines up in uh, Napa. Big, wonderful, amazing winery up there. And then, of course, you've got a daughter-in-law who is also actively involved in your wife on the business end of things. Absolutely. It's a family affair. Ooh, what's with the orange stuff? You've got an orange Viognier. You know, when you say orange wine, it conjures up to me this idea of maybe sweet or weird or something. And it's become the thing for a lot of people. It has. And, and it's simple to make an orange wine. It's historically quite unique. In fact, it goes back 8,000 years. In the early days, they would make a kivri, and that was a vessel, a ceramic vessel, which they would bury in the ground. They would line it with beeswax, and then they would put the grapes. Usually at that time, they were arcatzatelli. And that was a very arcatzatelli. odd... A very odd varietal from the Georgia region in the Caucasus. They would bury this in the ground, keeping it at cool temperatures for the whole year, and then they would dig it up about a year later, and it would indeed be orange. And in fact, there'd be a lot of extractions of tannins and color and uh, phenolics throughout the wine. It's the, the color is mostly coming from the, the skins themselves. How long does red wine stay on the skin? I would say 10 days to 30 days. Okay, so then on a rosé, mm-hmm. which is made, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking from red grapes, the same red grapes, even though it's just a, a, a light pink usually, that's because the juice stays with the skins for about how long? Oh, I, it depends. Now, there's the winemaker's input. Anywhere from th- a couple of days to uh, four or five days, maybe a week. Then you will get the kind of rosé you're looking for, either a very light one or a very darkish. But I've heard people say that they even leave them on for just a matter of hours. And Okay, exactly. And, and it, yeah. it depends on the type of grape and what you're looking for in your rosé. Okay, now on a white wine, when do we separate the skin from the grapes? On a white wine, a traditional one, it would be the day of or uh, maybe the day after you've crushed the grapes. So you harvest, you crush and destem, and either that day or the next day you will be pressing the grapes, separating the skins and seeds, and then you just ferment the juice. That's no, traditional no white skins, wine making. No, no skins. skins and seeds that, that you, you don't, don't need. need. Don't sing any more of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then with the orange wine, the big difference is the amount of time that the juice of the white grape remains with the skins. Yes. Just for fun this year, we make a Viognier, a traditional one of the uh, standard white wine variety. And what we did this year, because we pressed the Viognier the first day, we took those skins and seeds and added them to the other batch of, mm. of Viognier. Then we used that to extract more color and tannins in our orange wine this year. So I was really stunned by this wine. And, you know, we actually brought the wine in to our wine shop and tasting room 
and and people tried it. I mean, it's it's different. It's a, a, very, a very different tasting wine. You'd be surprised how that little nuance can make such a huge difference. But you've got a, a much bolder wine for one thing, more interesting flavors that you probably haven't discovered in other white wines. A spiciness that I noticed that's really interesting. And no, it's not sweet. It has nothing to do with that. But people have really flipped over that. What about you? Oh, yes. And it's like you say, it's night and day difference from our standard. Viognier. So I pour our standard Viognier in our tasting room, followed by the orange, just as a contrast, and people are amazed. Now, historically, the, the flavor profiles that you'll find for some of these deep and intense orange wines, they say, are bruised apple, honey, jackfruit, Brazil nut, varnish, juniper, uh, sourdough. Love, love, love my varnish. Linseed oil, uh, oh, wood. Delicious stuff. And, uh, it sounds like you're chewing on the end of the table. Exactly. <laughs> and, and for some uh, wines, I guess that's true, but we are doing it with a Viognier which is a floral variety, and we yeah. get none of that. So what we're getting is actual citrus. I think I taste a bit of orange or tangerine, maybe tang, something along those lines out of this wonderful now, wine. Now, there's a making. word I haven't heard. In a <laughs> I'm being realistic. It's, Do it's, they still make tang? I don't know, but I remember it, and that's what came to my mind. Okay, it's, gotcha. But it's delicious. The way we started making it, we were listening to a podcast by Jim Duane. Jim Duane uh, works at CV up in the Napa area, and he does a podcast for winemakers. He calls it Inside Winemaking by Jim Duane. And we listened to this and we heard a story about some young winemakers whose press had broken down and they decided to keep going with that wine anyway and they created an orange wine. And this was kind of how the trend started up in the Napa area. So, and so much of wine is accidental, isn't it? It is. And uh, we read and heard this podcast and uh, my son and I said, oh, we got to try this. And what better grape than a Viognier? If people want more information about Ruby Cellars or even to buy the wines, you can buy them online if uh, it's possible to ship to your state. It is. It's rubycellars.com and we're, we're shipping only in California, right? Now, we're small enough that we don't have licenses throughout the 50 states, but we'd be happy to ship to anybody in California that wants to try this unique wine. We've tripled up on our volumes this okay, year. Okay, but suffice to say, if you go to a good wine store, it has to be a good one, okay, and you ask for an orange wine, they may have one or two there for you. If you're just walking around a big box store like Total Wine & More, chances are you're not going to see a section that says orange wine because it's really not kind of an accepted classification right now, but anybody in the know in the business will know what you you mean when you say orange wine. And if they laugh at you, it means they know nothing about wine and don't buy any wine from them. That's right. But listen, if you are interested in interesting wines, very interesting wines, please, by all means, go to grapeencounters.com because we can ship to a lot of different places and we could probably uh, get your wines online too, Mike. We've got some very interesting select wines on there. We're now selling them online. And if your state qualifies, uh, which most do, then we can take care of you and we will. So go to grapeencounters.com and click on our store. Buy something. Why I'd not? be happy to work with Why you not to get that, that wide now. Yeah, that's yeah. Of course, that's how, that's how we keep this show on the air. We really appreciate it. We will see you back here next week at the corner of fermented and demented. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. It's
seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the Santa Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. Like certain wines, he's syrupy, sweet, and has long legs. Here's David Wilson. We are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and we're coming to you from the family-owned and operated nonchalant vineyards outside of Roseburg, Oregon. And I'm sitting in their tasting room with co-founder Weldon Manning. You know, there's an awful lot of people who never imagined themselves making wine, yet end up devoting the rest of their lives to this amazing occupation. So, Weldon, whose idea was it to jump into the wine business with both feet? Was that a mutual decision? Yeah, it was. When she was training to be a nurse, she um, was going to a community college down in Grants Pass, and they offered like a weekend course for viticulture and enology, and just things lined up so we took it together and in those days there was only two or three wineries here in southern Oregon so it was it was fairly small things to visit but it got us excited about doing it and it allowed us to start thinking about buying land down here and start this whole process so even now though this is actually called the Umqua Valley that's mm-hmm. the AVA here yes it is it's a pretty good size chunk of real estate yeah. that encompasses that but as wine regions go this is a pretty large area in terms of how large the AVA 
is, but the density of wineries in the area is very, very light, yes, comparatively speaking. So I imagine that creates some challenges in terms of getting harvest labor, things like that. If you're in a place, you know, like Napa or Sonoma or uh, even the Willamette uh, up further north, the density is much greater. So I'm, I'm imagining there's standby labor uh, that's much more readily available than what you're going to yeah, have here. Yeah, to a certain degree, it does create some problems. Fortunately, the Growers Association here, we're all friends. We've all met at meetings. We all kind of keep in touch with each other and various times of the year. And usually during about the time of harvest, there's a group of folks that we all kind of contact and share and seems to work out. They're all local labor. There are some temp agencies we can get some help with too, but We've never really had too much of a problem getting folks out here to, to pick. All right. So before we go, I just wanted to drill down on, again, this concept of having your tasting room, your winery, all part of the same complex that you live at. You know, in a state like California, where I'm from, regulation is just so oh, yeah. ridiculous that you'd be really hard pressed to be able to, you know, develop this kind of a situation here. What's it like working with the state? Well, we've not really had any problems with both uh, local and state authorities. I mean, there are some restrictions, obviously, occupancy, fire hazards, stuff like that. But we've never really had any problems with them. They've been more than helpful in a lot of ways. I've learned a lot by doing a lot of the permitting for all this. But, you know, some of these smaller places like this, you'll see a few more of them, particularly in these valleys, because they're, it's kind of like Napa was in the early 70s. There's still small family farms and they've kind of started growing and developing. And there's been at least uh, like eight or nine new wineries last year that have joined. That's a lot. A couple thousand acres of vineyard planted in the last couple of years. Well, I was also going to say that anybody that thinks that people, especially the small boutique producer, that those folks are getting rich off of it, it's a, <laughs> it's a rarity because it's, you know, the expenses are very steep in winemaking. And it seems to me like if you can share the expenses between your living situation and oh, yeah. your profession, that it suddenly gets a lot easier to be able to do it. And the feasibility makes a lot more sense for somebody that might be wanting to get into this yeah, kind of a situation. Absolutely. Yeah, Some of these little smaller mom and pop shops that are around do seem like they're doable. We've had pretty good success here in the valleys. When I said we first got here, there were eight labels. Now there's close to 30. And uh, that's in a 20-year period. Do, do you have people come and actually kind of pick your brain in terms of oh, yeah. you know wanting to do this themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody wants to do this, by sure. the way. Oh, Every, I... Everybody wants to do this. <laughs> well, come up here. I'll show you how it's done. <laughs> so, somebody should actually offer a class in why you shouldn't get in the wine business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, you spend like a six-week course where they take you through cleaning tanks and things like that. All the fun stuff. Oh, yeah. That yeah, you that'll, get to that'll do. change your mind right away. Yeah, really. <laughs> It'll be called, Are You Sure You Want to Do This 101? Yeah, exactly. And there should be some value to that. I think at least one of the nice things about our, our, our association here is... There's a lot of expertise and we're willing to share it with each other. Yeah. And that seems to make it a lot easier for all of us. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, Weldon, really nice to, to stay with you. Thank you very much. I forgot to mention, by the way, that I awoke this morning to turkeys outside the RV door. Yeah. The wild <laughs> Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> so we, okay. we harass everybody that parks. There's the a bunch lot. of them. If it, if it had been last night, I would have nabbed one of those suckers and we would have stuffed it and baked it up. But that wasn't the case. But you've got, I think you told me like a hundred of them on the property. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of them in the area. And they found out that my brother-in-law is an easy touch. He feeds them. So that Uh-oh. has a tendency to bring them. Well, before we head down the road, any regrets? 
You know, I have not got one. This has been one of the funnest things I can... You've had a great life. Oh, I've had a great time doing this, to Meet people from all over the world. I've traveled a lot as uh, in my career, and having the ability to have a bunch of folks from all over the planet come visit you is almost as good as traveling. Yeah, it is. They come to you and yeah. you know, make yeah. friends easily. Before we go, I, I did want to say we had a lot of fun tasting your wines yesterday. I really was taken aback by your rosé. Absolutely delicious. And the breadth and depth of the wines that you're making. I mean, gosh, everything from Syrah to Malbec to Merlot to Tempranillo. And then, of course, Pinot is your big thing. Yeah, it certainly is. And and this area of Oregon has got probably a couple hundred different varieties that can grow here. Yeah. It's got more warmth and, and temperature that allows for more interesting wines to develop. And so the lower three counties in uh, Oregon is becoming a true wine destination. It's something that I think a lot of folks ought to be able to try. And I will say this, the price is right too. The wines are very modestly priced in this area and you, you can get some really terrific wines for not very much money if you're used to paying you know, California prices. Come to Oregon. Although the Pinots are not cheap up in the Willamette. They're getting a pretty top dollar up there now. We're going to show them how that works down here. I too. was going to say, because your Pinots are every bit as good down here, but it just hasn't caught on like those have caught on. But they'll 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 be out there eventually. Yeah, and I think uh, someone was telling me the other day that there's this is like the fifth largest wine destination in the country now. And that's kind of amazing to me that there's people and they're realizing that the Southern Oregon AVAs have got uh, such uh, great varietals and very interesting places to go see. Yeah. And you can park right on the property in your RV and you can wake up to a delicious cup of coffee made by Weldon Manning. <laughs> that was a great cup of coffee. We appreciate you coming out and trying. And and the wines were delicious. For people who want to discover more about Chateau Nonchalant, and by the way, the most fitting name of almost... Uh, any winery that I've ever been to. Anyway, it's Chateau Nonchalant Vineyards, plural.com. Again, it's Chateau Nonchalant Vineyards.com. And you can purchase wines online as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. Great. And do that and support your small local boutique winemaker because uh, they can't survive without you. That's a fact. But they can live on wild turkey. Yeah, wild turkey and wild And I'm not talking about the wild turkey that a lot of you went, oh, that sounds good. (laughs) Wild bottles running. Wild turkey, not the case. All right, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. And many, many thanks to Weldon and Vicki Manning for putting us up and putting up with us at Chateau Nonchalant Vineyards in Roseburg, Oregon, a great place to come and visit if you want laid back. I think this is where laid back might have been invented right here. When we return from our brief break, we'll be in downtown Roseburg where you'll meet one of the co-owners of one of the most acclaimed and substantial wineries in Southern Oregon. But we won't be on a vineyard. We'll be in a facility that once was a Chevrolet dealership, now converted into a truly amazing winemaking facility and tasting room by two heavyweights in the world of wine. They're not just making incredible wines, they're also making history. Get the whole story when we return with Grape Encounters, right after this. The Central Coast of California is world-renowned for exceptional wines, but it's also one of the most vibrant and alluring travel destinations in America because the wide range of things to see and do here is absolutely astonishing. From stunning beaches to breathtaking hiking trails to world-class dining, artisan craftswork, and so much more, California's Central Coast is addictive. For those visiting this magical region, there's no better place to call home base than the city of Atascadero. 
Atascadero is perfectly centered in the middle of everything you'll want to see and do while you're here. A true slice of Americana. The locals here are eager to welcome you, and the accommodations are plentiful, comfortable, and affordable. Atascadero is a 365 days a year destination with mild winter weather and mostly sunny days, even when the rest of the country is bundled up. For more information about the warm and welcoming town of Atascadero, log on to visitatascadero.com. Discover the California Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets. And they have the scores to prove it. Log on to PeakRanch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E Ranch.com. You can buy their wines online which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. We are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and now we've moved down the road a piece to downtown Roseburg, Oregon. And what better place to stop when you're traveling by RV than a Chevy dealership? (laughs) Oops, except this RV is on a Ford chassis, and the Chevy dealership is no longer selling vehicles. It's home to the truly world-class Paul O'Brien Winery, which is overseen by two amazing winemakers, one of whom is with me right now. Dyson Damara and Dyson, it's so nice to be in your digs. It is awesome, and it's, it's great to have you here. We, uh, we love sharing what we do here. And I would never know this is a Chevy. Well, it looks like a Chevy dealership from the outside, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. But this is the first urban winery in, is it in Roseburg or it, it, in the entire state? It, it, well, it's, it's in Umpqua Valley. I mean, actually, the roots of urban wineries are in Portland. And, you know, today you see them in New York, Los Angeles, this kind of thing. Um, this is the first one in Umpqua Valley. Roseburg would be the epicenter of that. So right. we're very much the gateway. And as you drove in off of Highway 5, we're like one minute literally off the freeway there on old Highway 99 that parallels uh, Highway 5. But what a perfect facility. I don't think I've ever been inside a winery that took over a car dealership. But boy, it makes sense. You got, you know, great big high ceilings and lots of space. and It, it fit perfectly. Actually, that's the same thing my partner, uh, uh, Scott O'Brien Kelly, uh, told me in 2011, probably we first started looking at this building. We both had worked in Mondavi down in Napa Valley, met, and I came up here with my wife and took over uh, the oldest winery in Oregon. And he was looking at going somewhere to kind of spread his wings and find a place that he could produce world-class wines using his skill set. And so one morning we were having breakfast, a greasy spoon, and, I, and he said, boy, I'm just trying to figure out how to get out of 
California and come to Oregon and that. And I said, finish your breakfast and I'm going to show you something. Really? And, yeah. yeah. And, and so I pulled them up to this building and the dealership had been closed down, but I had him peek inside the service area. Look, and I'll never forget, he was looking inside the window and the door and he turned around and looked at me like I was crazy. But about two years later, he planted roots here and uh, it's been great ever since. Wow. And, w- and what was he doing up to that point in time. Yeah, both Scott and I have, have worked all over the world. He went from uh, La Familia to Robert Mondavi, which was a high-end Italian varietal yeah. producing winery behind Mondavi in Oakville. He became GM and director of winemaking for Estancia, where he made uh, Which wine. is huge, right? Yeah. I mean, just huge. Yeah, H- huge even by Oregon standards. I mean, that year, Scott made as much wine as the whole state of Oregon did. Pino, <laughs> 1.4 million cases. So, yeah, it was very much into come here, where probably the average size of a winery in Umpqua Valley and it's part of the charm is probably under 2,000 cases. So what do you do here? Yeah, we do about 50,000 cases total, and we started in 2013, and we've taken fruit here that hasn't... People aren't that familiar with Umpqua Valley. We're just a little bit south of Willamette, but we're a lot like the Russian River, and so a lot of this fruit has been pulled up into the north, and that we're just really beginning to brand Umpqua Valley, and as I mentioned, Scott and I have worked around the world, and, and the nature here is so powerful. So, you know, for people wondering what's on the other side of the fence, kind of the explorer for wine tasting, it is so exciting what's happening here. We have a lot of different varieties. We have 80 varieties in the ground. So there's actually more varieties in Umpqua Valley than any other wine region of Oregon. And so people come here to live their dream, and we've got people doing Austrian, Spanish varieties, Italian varietals, and it's it's just endless. So if you can imagine Russian River, maybe 1950. And this is, I mean, for sure, an emerging region. That's sure. On a scale from one to ten, where is it in that emergence? Yeah. So I say day one. Day one. <laughs> day one. I say we have we have some of the most powerful nature on the West Coast. But the thing is, is that part of the charm of Oregon is a lot of people that enter the wine business have never worked in it before. So right now we have thirty four wineries, and I think there's four or five wineries that people have worked in the wine business somewhere else before they've come to Umpqua Valley. And so we're just getting to the point that you begin to see people with experience from outside come in and really to me, prove the power of the fruit that we have so here. So do, do you find yourself scratching your head going, why am I the only one here that's making a, a high volume of wine? Because in the wine industry, there's some really powerful folk yeah. who jump into a region and just take over. Yeah. yeah. And you're that guy. Yeah, we're that guy. So so we, yeah. we've seen that trajectory working for Mandavi and Pine Ridge and that we see this trajectory. I think about Paso Robles. I mean, Paso Robles before the earthquake, you know, was just kind of to me a quaint little town. Post that you just see it take off and become an epicenter for fine wine on the West Coast. And so we're doing the same thing here. We knew when we opened this up that we were a little bit ahead of the curve, but we begin to see it now as we see interest out of Napa Valley come here and buy property and people begin to move south even. There there are some producers, there's a producer uh uh, Jim Bernau of Willamette Valley Vineyards that talks about Umpqua Valley could be one of the greatest wine producing regions in Oregon. Yeah, I've, def- I've definitely seen that. Yeah. But you, you're in a very um, catch-22 kind of place because on one hand, you want this to become known. On the other hand, you don't want this to become known. Yeah. I- I'm talking about yeah. from the consumer standpoint versus the producer oh. standpoint. Are you encouraging people to come here or... Would you like to just monopolize it? Oh, no, no, no. We want it. So the thing is, is that it's, um, 
it's great to have people help share the story of what it is that we have here. It's, it's so magic in that. And so the more the merrier. And actually, for critical mass, I think you need probably like 50 to 100 yeah, wineries to exactly. really be an epicenter. And so we do everything we can to not only encourage new people, but to also have people that are here produce better and better wine, trying to share your ideas and that and your marketing expertise so that you can get out there. So one thing like Napa has, and I'd argue Central Coast, New Zealand, is that the overall quality is very high. So when a consumer goes into a restaurant, they open up a wine list and maybe they don't know any of the wines on there but they know that area know that you're going to get decent quality out of that area there are a lot of areas that are much more erratic and i remember in napa valley in the early 80s it was pretty erratic well today there's no room for people being erratic and the overall quality is very very nice and so here that's actually one of the major things in oregon is really kind of i always say great regions aren't defined by the greatest wines they make it's 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 the 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 bottom end of the tier if you can take that and produce very very nice wines at a very let's say inexpensive level consistently that's where you become famous and people want to come, but our pursuit here is a little bit of everything. At 50,000 cases, we want to be somebody's Wednesday night pizza wine with like our Oregon territory, but then Paul O'Brien, I mean, everything that we dedicated to the North Coast and Central Coast when Scott and I were working together, that's what we do here. It's just, there's really nobody with that kind of experience that's been here. And so the experience, if you think about cooking, it's one thing to cook a really, really nice meal for eight people. It's another thing to cook a nice meal for 200 people, the same menu. Same thing is true of wine. And in Oregon, we don't have a lot of people with experience to produce a million cases of a particular wine in that that's something that we bring to the table here is the ability to do very high end you know we do Oregon Territory label that's Pinot that's $16 a bottle that is 100% aged in French oak Nobody wow. else does that. Most people are aging in tanks. So tell me what we're drinking right now. This is a Tempranillo. Yeah, this is a Tempranillo, which is a very exciting grape. has a long history, over 100 years on the West Coast. And that We do Tempranillo a couple different ways. What we have in the glass right now is cask 11. And these are 1,200-liter European oak cask that the wine ages about a year and a half in. And there's a big movement in Europe from stainless steel to concrete fermenters. And another tradition is people are going back to larger casks where you age wines a little bit longer, but the impact of the wood is not so great. So it's, it's almost like sashimi-grade fish. You can present something that's nature's beauty and you select the best stuff and you don't have to mess with it at all. So we're going to actually taste a couple different Tempranillos. This is the hands-off Tempranillo and then I'll pour you a little wine. It's a little bit more like a Ribera del Duero just north of uh, Madrid, which is kind of more the international style. They use some varieties like Malbec to blend in and that, but there's a lot of aging in small cooperage where the wines are quite a bit more dramatic. All right, well, let's jump into that. We've got to try like five wines in three minutes. That's right. (laughs) Olympic effort. We'll do that, no problem. And that's okay. (laughs) It could be worse. So this is is the Reserva. So this is aged small barrel, quite a bit more impact from wood, and you'll notice more extraction in this wine. So, you know, we talk about you know, nature, nature is so powerful, and that's the prerequisite you have to have for great wine. But the human element is also super important. I mean, you look at the difference between, like, northern Italy, Pinot Grigio, and what the French do in Alsace, and that where they pick it is so different. So this has the human element of how we shift things from a hands-off approach to maybe more of modern winemaking, where it's much more kind of dramatic, structured kind of wine. But it shows the depth of dry-farmed hillside fruit, and I think the wine speaks for itself. Oh, my gosh, yes. You had me at the first sniff. <laughs> Excellent. To be honest with you, but this is just elegant and rich. It's full but never heavy. I I was going to say that so much of what I've tasted in this area is quite a bit lighter than what we're tasting here. Yeah, yeah. And and this has got a concentration of fruit that is really, really gorgeous. The thing is, is that if you really drink wine, the last glass should be the best glass in the bottle. There's a lot of wines it's easy to over-extract as well, that it's more like scotch. The first glass is the best, and then you get kind of tired about halfway through Hey, wait a second. You're telling my listeners just the opposite of what I tell them. (laughs) You know, drink the good bottle first, you know, and then 
if you want more, yeah. you go get the cheap oh, stuff. Amen, amen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's many ways to skin this, but uh, yeah, <laughs> however you like, as long as we're drinking. This wine is gorgeous, though. Okay, so the, so the wine is Paul O'Brien. This is the Reserva Tempranillo. Correct. And Correct. I'm going to tell you right now, if you can get your hands on a bottle of this. For sure, you're going to be happy. And if you're not happy, put the cork back in it. Call me and we'll find a way to get the rest of it to me. Yeah. All right. Got to take a break. But I'm going to continue to enjoy this amazing Tempranillo with my guest Dyson Damara at the Paul O'Brien Winery in Roseville, Oregon. We'll be back in about 20 sips. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time. John Wagner. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet.
go to peakranch.com. He's back, and he's not alone. Your Grape Encounter continues with David Wilson and a little help from his friends. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and my guest Dyson Damara, co-founder of the Paul O'Brien Winery in Roseville, Oregon, where I'm just loving this gorgeous Tempranillo he poured me before the break. Dyson, this is so good. I'm afraid to ask how much. Retail. Um, this is $45 a bottle, and these wines, so Paul O'Brien wines, with rare exception, are only sold here out of the tasting room right now. That's really, really beautiful. How many of the smaller winemakers in the area come to you guys for advice? Um, quite a few. I mean, we like to share ideas and that. Yeah. And so it really has to do more with the type of person. There are people that like to do everything themselves and kind of, you know, and, and there's some great, great wines. I mean, some of my favorite wines in Europe are that way where people have this belief and they just kind of march that path. Uh, my mentor was a guy named Henri Jaillet in Burgundy that above his door it said the trick there were no tricks. And as the whole world moved towards all the new techniques and that, he stayed with the old techniques. And those are some of the great wines of the, the world. The trick is there's no tricks. The trick. And I think it's true of everything I in life. I think that's a great yeah. line. Yeah. 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 All right. What's next now? Uh, what we've got next is I've got a couple Pinots. I've got a Pinot from a top vineyard that we have here in Umpqua Valley. Oh, we call it Susan's Vineyard. And then after that, I'll pour you a very high-end Pinot that we do out of the Willamette Valley. Now, it's uh, Susan's Vineyard. That's your wife? Oh, no, that's not my wife. It's confusing because my yes, wife it, is Susan. But it's actually a dear friend of mine who's an architect. It's an area within about 20 miles. There's no other vineyard. And so it speaks to the rawness and the early stage that we are at in Umpqua Valley. There are so many properties that can be planted. I think even in the state of Oregon, we talk about there being over a million acres of plantable vineyard land that haven't been planted yet. And right now we're like at, I think we're almost approaching 40,000 acres of vineyard. Napa has 50% more than that, and that makes 3% of the wine in California. So the whole state of Oregon produces almost nothing relative to California. But it's a very good nothing. Oh, it's a very good nothing. You know, yeah. you know it's, 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 <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, anybody that's familiar with my show knows that I have a Pinot thing, mm-hmm. and it's not a good Pinot <laughs> yeah. thing, okay? Oh, okay. But I'm, I'm going to no, I'm going to qualify that. Okay. And it, it's that I think of all the varietals made, there's more junky Pinot out there. And so it's a lot of work to vet out the good Pinots. But I tell people that you have permission to drink <laughs> Pinots <laughs> from the Russian River yeah. and yes. any place yes. in Oregon. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I'll also throw in the Santa Lucia Highlands. Oh, fantastic. And yeah, then, of course, to. from the Old World. Yeah. Oh, for sure. As for well. Sure. Yeah. But I'm very particular about yeah. Pinot. Yeah. And this is absolutely crazy. Crazy delicious. Oh, beautiful. Well, well, thank you. It's a minx, and that's part of it. It's, it's the challenge of Pinot Noir. The challenge is it's not the sure thing Cabernet Sauvignon is. And so the ability to produce really high-quality Pinot, once again, there's all these gardens here that nobody's figured out. I mean, they've all been harvested and been blended into some big tank you up just, in the northern part of the you state. You just salivate when you talk yeah. about this area, yeah. don't yeah, yeah, you? Because yeah. the nature here is so powerful. There are areas that are very famous in the last 10 or 15 years on the West Coast, and I won't name those, that have like 60% potential out of 100, and they maybe they're batting 95% of that potential. They brought in skill and expertise from other areas. Yeah. This area has 95% potential. The raw nature is so powerful, but we're probably at about 30 or 40% of the potential. So the human element is the thing that has to come in and kind of interpret this and then manifest these great gardens and then present it. But the nature here is so powerful. I know in 20 years, this area will be not Napa Valley necessarily, but it'll be an area if you know wine, you know Umpqua Valley, and you've got Umpqua Valley. Now you wine know you're going to be 20 years older then, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I drink a lot of red wine. I'm in good shape. <laughs> don't you worry. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. So, so this is the Paul O'Brien Pinot Noir from Susan's Vineyard, Umpqua Valley, 2015. Yeah. Yes. This gets a thumbs up. Awesome. It would get two thumbs up except I'm holding the bottle. <laughs> okay. See? Thumbs up over yeah, here. Yeah, thumbs up. All right. Yeah, we, right. we got it. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Awesome. All right. I hate to dump it, actually, but I'm going to have to dump it. Oh, that's all right. There's more where that came from. Tell me about um, you and your partner's background because you guys – came from the Mondavi operation. C- correct. We met in Napa Valley. Um, I was in production later on in marketing at Mondavi. I'd worked for Pine Ridge, and I've worked uh, South America. I've worked Asia in the wine business in Japan. I've worked uh, throughout Europe, both with Pine Ridge and Mondavi on ventures. Um, Scott, my partner, the O'Brien part of it, he is about 10 years younger than me, but he worked at Mondavi. He also worked in the Central Coast down in Monterey. He started, graduate of Davis, and he was the winemaker that oversaw all international joint ventures. So the Frescobaldi joint venture with Luce Lucente at Mondavi, right. with the Shaw family, which was kind of like the Mondavi family at Rosemont in Australia. He oversaw those wines. So both he and I have a great love of the world of wine. And we're both, we consider ourselves not so much even ambassadors of Umqua Valley or Paul O'Brien, but really of, of, of the quality of life of what wine brings. This is Sangiovese. So I, I know I'm looking at your face and I think you like the wine. One way or the other, you seem pretty moved by it. <laughs> yeah, this, this just hit me right between yeah. the eyeballs. Italian varietals here smoke. So how I discovered Umqua Valley was doing research on NOAA looking at Piemonte in northern Italy, which areas of the West Coast matched it. Roseburg, Oregon is the closest to that. And I, we do Barbera in this area. Sangiovese, this is our first high-end Sangiovese, a little bit of Merlot and Syrah. This is crazy delicious. Yeah. This is world-class. Yeah, yeah, this is world-class, exactly. This is Il Renegati. So this speaks, once again, you don't know what you don't know. I put the top wines of Umqua Valley I put up against any place in the world. This brings me to tears, this wine. Well, that's awesome. It's Pinot, I'm it, tricking you. No kidding. No, <laughs> No, no, it brings me to tears just because I probably can't afford it. How much is this? It's not bad. This is $75 a bottle. It's actually one of the two most expensive wines. I like what he says. It's not bad. It's only $75 a bottle, you know. If you look at Super Tuscans, I mean, there's a lot of Super Tuscans well beyond this and that. We produce, I mean, these wines, I think we did about 50 cases or 75 cases of this wine. So it's tiny, tiny production. In the future, we'll do more and more of this. We do a normale. Yeah, this is a monster. This is just. Yeah, yeah. It's elegant and powerful. A nice monster. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. I just want to let listeners know that they missed a whole lot of really good hand gestures. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's at 1% of time. You are are the king of hand gestures. Gestures and oh, metaphors. Yeah, 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 exactly. I know. Do you dream in metaphors? <laughs> I've never thought about it. Actually, I'm not a dreamer, to be honest with you. I thought I threw a lot of metaphors out, but I can't even hold a candle to you. Really? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got one more to go, and because uh, we're running out of okay. time here. So, this is another Pinot Noir that we do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Two thumbs up again, I hope. I was going to give it just a capital W, but I'm going to give it a capital O and the second W as well. Yeah. I like wines that are so gentle, but yet have a lot of personality, but are fresh. I like to drink wine. So you can't make it too intense. So if it's too intense, you know, halfway through the bottle, it's too much. But this is a wine that grows. It starts off very interesting, but it grows incredibly in the first glass or two. And believe me, it leaves two people wanting another glass. I'm going to tell you that this is a Pinot that will convert Pinot haters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great wine is beyond wine. Yeah. This is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Definitely check out Paul O'Brien Wines. And the website is paulobrienwines.com. That's it. And you do not need the apostrophe. That's correct. All right. We've got to go. Dyson, 
we could talk for hours. You could be the co-host. Been, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, who, who am I kidding? I, I'll be your Ed McMahon, you know? Ned, this is awesome. Because <laughs> I can tell, you turn you on, there's no off switch. Yeah, that's a problem for some. Yeah, yeah actually literally unplug you from the wall yeah, until the power runs out. I know, I hope it lasts till the end. Well, what a delight. Well, thank you for the opportunity oh, to share what we do. My pleasure. Can't wait to come back and see you again. Awesome. That's going to do it for today's Grape Encounters. Join us next week when we'll be on the road again. 